Hello, welcome to Seattle on Tap. I am Courtney Jacobson. And I am Ashley Toten. Happy uh, Thursday. The sweaty, sweaty Thursday. <laughs> oh. I... Uh, it's also Bao Bao's birthday. Yeah. Which you won't hear till Monday, but happy belated birthday on Monday. It, we're officially telling you happy birthday on your birthday, so we do get brownie points for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but happy. <laughs> so there. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I was it's... just being very jealous of all the uh, Hawaii pictures I was watching him post, mm -hmm. namely the, the breweries and and drinking beer in tropical places pictures but you know the water i was like i just want to like lay in it and yeah. float around yeah so bad definitely yeah i wasn't i haven't been sweaty and miserable from the heat because i work down in my basement aka the refrigerator so i'm still down there with hoodies on <laughs> then i come upstairs it's it's really comical coming up the stairs and the levels of heat that i reach until i get to the top and then i'm like oh should have left my hoodie downstairs <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is fucking hot in seattle right now if you are not from here it, it's going to be really fucking hot this weekend we were just discussing it's going to be over 100 degrees for a few days straight not great. It's not not uh, not ideal. No. I mean, right now I'm loving the temperature right now because it's 72 at night, and mm -hmm. I know very few people are with me on this, but I love it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm okay being alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> I have like. An AC going. Oh, also, I should mention, hmm. if you hear my AC click on, I know I'm not being a princess. I want to make sure. So Blix, our little mascot puppy, uh, he has an ear infection and is not well. Uh, and so just to make sure he's like as comfortable as he can be, the AC is running. So apologies if you hear that. And also, if you hear him yell, he is in pain, but he is not being murdered. <laughs> he's taking medication and we're working on it, but he's in a lot of pain right now. Poor guy. Sucks. It does suck. But yeah, I've got the AC and the fan, like right as I go to bed, I'm like, it needs to be like a fridge in here. <laughs> and I also want to use all my blankets. <laughs> yeah, that is the thing. I do have that weird thing of, I have to have blankets on no matter what. So mm -hmm. you and I spoke about this a long time ago, how we both have a weird way that we situate the blankets so that we're not fully covered, but mm -hmm. certain air, certain, I guess, comfort areas are covered so you can sleep. <laughs> yep. Drives Daniel crazy. Yeah. Gordon hates it too. But, and then I'm like, well, well, over here. <laughs> <laughs> over there <laughs> oh man 
what are you uh what are you drinking over there <laughs> you as you yawn <laughs> i know <clears throat> yeah it's been a week guys well um, I'm finally i think it's just i'm finally relaxed from the long day <laughs> fair enough here we are that's what beer's for yeah um I, again, with it being so goddamn hot, decided that I was going to drink a lager today. Mm. So I am drinking the Little Beast Lager. They're from Portland, Oregon. Um, this is a super crisp, clean lager. Um, it's also a seasonal release that they started releasing last year. Um, and it is super fresh, easy to drink, really light uh, malt profile. Um, it's fermented with Augustiner yeast and is brewed with 100% German heritage and German grown hops and malt. Um, it's hopped with Hollertau Mittelfru and also um, Pearl hops that, and it's later, sorry, I just like had a brain fart. And then it also uh, is lightly dry hopped in its finish with Mandarina Bavaria, um, which has some nice like citrusy, spicy berry notes. Um, and it's 4.8. So yeah, it's very good. I'm drinking it way too fast. So I have second drink mm -hmm. sitting over here for my consumption. Nice. Yeah, I started with a a very light, refreshing beverage. It's not really going to be my podcast beer, so I'm not going to, uh, yeah, I'm not going to talk about that one. But my official beer that I'm about to open, I'm going with a Maibach today because lighter beer. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Ish. lighter in flavor. Uh, <laughs> Maibach from Phase 3 Brewing. They're in, out of Lake Zurich, Illinois. And um, the, the note here on this one is that... Uh, Folks call the Maibach a celebration beer for special occasions. So raise a glass and celebrate. Um, I guess we're celebrating... The solstice. Yeah, there we go. Boom. <laughs> so it, then it says, for folks who desire fresh flavors, prost. For the fans who crave a light floral nose, prost. Uh, for the people who've got to have those malty, honey, drizzled breadcrumb, fla breadcrumb flavors with an effervescent crisp head, prost. <laughs> and for the folks from the front to the back who want all that and a higher ABV, huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> I just love the way they wrote that, so I had to read it. But yeah, um... It's a uh, 6.8 ABV, and I will let you know what my tongue thinks as soon as I open it. Fair enough. So I believe, yes, you go first today. Are you ready? All right. <laughs> yes and no. Oh. <laughs> uh. Well, as you all are well aware, because you have nightmares every week, we have covered a bunch of serial killers on this show, but the person I'm going to be talking about tonight truly stands out amongst the rest. 
Her story is so unique and so tra tragic that movies and books have been written about her. And she is Eileen Warnos, and this is her story. Oh, I'm gonna have to bounce <laughs> her off my list. <laughs> <laughs> you could always do it again, and we can laugh about it in like a year. <laughs> Odds are good. That's why I'm saying I have to remember to. <laughs> Uh, Eileen Carol Pittman, or Lee, as she preferred to be called by folks she fancied, was born in February of 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. Practically straight from the womb, her life became a tragedy. Eileen's parents married when her mom, Diane Warnos, was only 14, and her father, Leo Dale Pittman, was 16. Soon after their marriage, Eileen's brother Keith was born, and then two years after that, the couple had Eileen. But while Eileen's mom, Diane, was about seven months pregnant, she filed for divorce. Um, Leah was in prison at the time. Um, and it seems that, you know, throughout their marriage, he'd been pretty abusive and troublesome. Um, and actually, while he was in prison, he was diagnosed schizophrenic and was also later convicted of sex crimes against children, which is not great. Um, Leo hung himself in prison on January 30th of 1969. When Eileen was four um, and her brother would have been about six, her mom left the kids with her parents and then never came back. Her grandparents decided to legally adopt both kids and did so on March 18th of 1960, which based upon what I've told you sounds super great, except that it turns out that her grandparents were hardcore alcoholics Mm -hmm. And her grandfather, according to Eileen, um, seemed to really enjoy beating her regularly and also apparently sexually abused her as a child. And her account of these situations in her childhood, she said that her grandfather would get drunk and then make her take her clothes off and then beat her while she was naked. Ugh. By, yeah, her, it's not great. <laughs> By age 11, Eileen became sexually active, um, usually involving sexual favors that she did in exchange for cigarettes, drugs, and or food, which shows you the sort of life she was living at the time. Mm -hmm. During this time, she also occasionally had sex with her own brother. Ugh. Yeah, not great. Uh, in 1970, when Eileen was 14, excuse me, first burp of the show, you're welcome. <laughs> There's another. Recorded burp of the show. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, when Eileen was 14, she became pregnant, um, and it kind of came out soon after her pregnancy was found out that the baby actually was fathered by her grandfather's friend, um, which they don't, like... I don't have a lot of info on whether or not that was a situation that her grandfather knew about or if they were somehow in cahoots and child abuse. I don't really know. Either way, she got knocked up by her grandpa's friend, which is really gross. Yeah. So Eileen was sent to live in a home for unwed mothers where she gave birth to a baby boy on March 23rd, 1971 and put the baby up for adoption. Thank God. Like, I can't even imagine living the life she was living then and trying to have a baby to like too much. Yeah. Um, they soon forced her to do that too. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, soon after the baby's birth, Eileen also decided to drop out of high school, which I mean, or not even high school, she was out of school. She would have been in junior high-ish, early high school. Which, um, that's a lot of shit that she's already dealt with before even graduating high school. That's so funny. Oh, yeah. I mean, circumstantially, I completely understand. I mean, school fucking sucked for me at that age. I can't imagine if you had all this other shit going on. Yeah. Um... By 15, her grandmother had passed away. And I kind of get the impression that grandma was the only way she was kind of able to stay in the house, you know? Mm -hmm. Like her grandma was like, she's our grandkid. But as soon as she died, her grandfather threw her out of the house. So Eileen started living in the woods, not far from where her grandfather's house was. Um, again, she has no education and is now in a super desperate state, literally living in the woods yeah. in Michigan. And Eileen started supporting herself via sex work. Yeah. Eileen's first major brush with the law was on May 27th, 1974, when she was arrested in Colorado for DUI. And so essentially she used to like hitchhike around because I mean, she had nowhere to go. So she's like, I don't know, I hear there's something cool there. I'm gonna go hitchhike there. And sleep my way out there and make money and then come back. Yeah. Um, but in Colorado, she gets arrested for DUI. And along with that <laughs> DUI, she tried to resist arrest. She was arrested for disorderly conduct was another charge. But the other charge involved with her DUI was firing a gun from the car while driving drunk, <laughs> which is not funny, but it's like, Again, I'm having Yosemite Sam flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, related to these crimes, she was also later charged with failure to appear in court because mm. she just fucking left Colorado after she got out of jail and was like, goodbye. Yeah. Um, two years later, Eileen hitchhiked down to Florida and pretty much as soon as she got there, she met a, a man named... Louis Gratzfell, who was 69 years old. Um, Eileen was 20 at the time. Mm. The couple married very soon after meeting, like a week or less. Um, and as you might imagine, things didn't go very well. Eileen was constantly getting into fights at the local bar, was ac uh, actually arrested for assaulting one of the patrons in one of these incidents. Um, and she also started becoming abusive to her now husband. Um, and she assaulted him with his own cane at one point. And that was enough for him to file a restraining order against her um, and like petition for an annulment, essentially. And all of that happened in less than one month of marriage. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I love that part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So after she and her husband split, she hitchhiked her ass back to Michigan, where she made zero attempts to stay out of trouble and <laughs> was arrested in Antrim County for assaulting a bartender. And when I say that, she threw a cue ball at the person's head. Oh, yeah. I would be so fucking angry if somebody <laughs> threw a cue ball at me, even if it didn't hit me. I'd be so fucking mad. Oh my God. Go into a murderous rage. <laughs> <laughs> um, three days after that incident, her brother actually passed away, um, which 
to be honest, based on history, probably didn't, she didn't probably give too many shits, I would assume about it. Never However, met. it's hard to know. I, yeah, I don't know. I shouldn't say that, but yeah. she did inherit $10,000 of his life insurance policy. Okay. Which, um, even to me currently is a lot of money, but mm -hmm. when you are living in a desperate way and have never had anything, a lot of folks do not spend that money very um, appropriately. Yeah, well. And she did not. Um, within two months, she had spent all of the money on random ass shit and alcohol. She did, however, buy herself a car, but soon after buying it, totaled it uh, in another DUI situation. Yeah. She so that's a big fun. alcoholism issue. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which it sounds like was probably pretty genetic. But also a Her lifestyle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Like that noise. <laughs> so a few years after her like DUI situation, in 1981, Eileen went to prison for armed robbery of a corner store where <laughs> that sounds really hardcore, except that she came out with like a few bucks and two packs of cigarettes. Oh man. Yeah. So I can only imagine she was probably wasted and the clerk was like, so I'm calling the cops Here's a handful of dollars and two packs of cigarettes. Good day. This is like that Ooh. classic beer color when you think of a beer commercial or if they're drawing a beer in a cartoon. It's like the most... If you didn't hear, Courtney just opened her beer officially. It's exactly how it was described. Light, effervescent malty bready crisp it's delicious sounds good mm -hmm. all right all right so back to miss eileen between may of 1984 and january of 1986 she was arrested for trying to do many of things such as passport checks theft and car theft um, at her time of her arrest for stealing the car, when officers put her into custody and searched the car, they actually found a gun and ammo in the car with her, FYI. Mm -hmm. On June 2nd, 1986, Eileen was brought in for questioning after a man contacted the authorities, accusing her of pulling a gun on him in his own car. And she evidently started demanding money, but the very specific sum she requested was $200, which mm -hmm. seems arbitrary. However, I guess when you broke. You probably provided a service for that. <clears throat> right? Uh, police found ammo on Eileen at the time of the, her interrogation that matched a pistol that was tucked under the seat of the man's car, which police think that she probably like dropped getting out of the car mm. and trying to leave the scene. Um, and then sometime in late 86 and early 87, uh, while drinking in a lesbian bar in Daytona Beach, Eileen meets Tyria Moore. Uh, the two quickly moved in together. Um, Eileen pretty much right away was like, she was a maid, Tyria was. 
Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't want you doing this and I don't want you doing that. Let me take care of you and started supporting her via sex work, which Tyria claimed she did not know initially. Um, I guess it's possible. I sort of call bullshit on that, but I mean, you never know. Yeah. That July, the women were questioned after a bar patron accused the women of assaulting them. And not long after the two began living together and Eileen started working the streets more, things started to get pretty nasty. On November 30th of 1989, Eileen was out looking for a John and eventually found herself in the company of Richard Charles Mallory, a 51-year-old convicted rapist. The only version of events we have is from Eileen herself, um, and she claims that Mallory drove them out to a secluded area, which isn't super unusual because she was a sex worker. Yeah. Um, But as soon as they got out there, he began attacking her. He sodomized her and beat her viciously. Um, As we know from previous accounts, Eileen was known to carry a gun. And she was able to break free from him and shot him several times in the chest. Two days later, Mallory's abandoned car was found. And then a couple of weeks after that, the remains of Mallory were found with multiple gunshot wounds. Two of those shots hit him in his left lung, which was his actual cause of death. His body was found several miles away, which really could mean a lot of things, but um, it does leave Eileen's claims of self-defense to be very, a very strong possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like maybe he chased her, maybe he tried to, she tried to hide him, maybe the attack actually happened there and then Eileen drove in a van in the car where it was later found. It's hard to say. Yeah. After finally recovering from her attack and laying low, um, after killing Mallory, she headed back into the streets. This time she was picked up by David Spears, a 47 year old construction worker. And there's not a lot known about what their actual interaction was, but David was officially declared missing May 19th of 1990. And on June 1st of 1990, his remains were found along US Route 19 in Citrus County. And he had been shot six times, which is a lot of times. Uh, That's a lot of times. Very, but you know. Yeah. Just five days after David's remains were found, the remains of Charles Karskoden, I'm so sorry if I said his last name wrong, it's a Scandinavian name and I'm not a Scandinavian lady. (laughs) Um, (laughs) A 40-year-old, this guy was a 40-year-old rodeo worker. Um, He had been shot nine times and was discarded with a blanket wrapped around him. It had been determined that Charles was killed on May 31st, 1990, and definitely bad news for Eileen because witnesses saw her cruising around in his car shortly after his murder. uh, And she also pawned a gun locally that turned out to belong to him. Hmm. So none of those things are looking good. But again, this lady's not wasting any fucking time. And June of 1990, Eileen found herself in yet another predicament after 65-year-old Peter, I think it's Sims, might be Sims, <laughs> went missing after leaving Florida to move to Kansas. He was like a fisherman kind of dude. Okay. Um, and he was retirement age and he was like, oh, I'm gonna 
move along ranch (laughs) you know whatever um but he has never been found still Hmm. and eileen and tyria were seen around that time ditching his car after getting into a car accident in it and the women were identified after their names and sketches were advertised in the media because evidently witnesses heard them screaming at each other like literally being like Eileen stop it Tyria you stop like yelling at each other yeah which is like okay guys (laughs) uh having her name officers use the prints on record to compare because she had been arrested all of the fucking times right um and they compared that to evidence from the scene and it was confirmed that Eileen's palm print was found inside the car which is again a real bad look July 31st, 1990, Troy Burris was reported missing and then found really soon after on August 4th, 1990 in the woods along Route 19 in Marion County. His cause of death was two fatal gunshot wounds and he was also 50 years old. Um, I also wanna point out, do you see a theme of like age? Yeah. That they're all probably like, I would assume that her first attacker traumatized her, but they're all about like grandpa age from when she was a young lady. Oh yeah. I don't know why I'm doing this motion with my hand while I'm telling you that. <laughs> this is how you- Why not? Yeah, that's how the point gets across. <laughs> why not? That's my serious hand. This is my evidence hand. Mesmerize <laughs> me with arm motions. <laughs> I try. I understand. Y'all are missing out. <laughs> <laughs> um, On September 11th, 1990, Dick Humphreys, a 56-year-old retired police chief, was shot six times. He was fully clothed, and there was no evidence that he had taken or attempted to take any part in any sexual act with Eileen and was found on the side of the road the next day. So it literally looked like she kind of carjacked him. Yeah. Um, Lastly, Eileen killed 62-year-old Walter Antonio on November 19th, 1990, and he was found mostly naked and had been shot four times. On January 9th, 1991, Eileen was taken into custody for an outstanding warrant and was arrested at the last resort, um, which was a bar in, I think it's pronounced Belusia, I might be super wrong, County. I also am fine with being wrong. Um, Tyria was also tracked down by police, but in every app, like effort to save her own fucking ass. She told police that she could and would get Eileen to confess to the crimes, but she would only do so if she got full immunity in all cases, which is a trifling bitch move. Yeah. She knew enough at a certain point that she should have got like accessory at least. Yeah. You were in this for a while. Yes. Tyria was sent back to Florida and after several pleading phone calls in which she begged Eileen to help her clear her name, Eileen confessed to all of the murders on January 19th, 1991. However, she claimed that she killed all of these men in self-defense. Also fun fact, she killed all of these men in less than a year or in about a year, seven people in a year, which when you think about it like that, I mean, she was practically always killing somebody which is wild. I didn't really um quick. Yeah, she just legit like snapped her switch and was like, and all of you are dead now. Ugh. 
Eileen's trial for the death of Mallory began almost exactly a year after her arrest and Tyria testified. And it was a pretty, if you could, the videos are out there. I watched the whole testimony. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cold. She's just like very much not giving a shit about Eileen even a tiny bit and is clearly like saving her own ass. But yeah. Um, in addition to her testifying, um, several psychiatrists also did and it was determined that Eileen had borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. However, she was still deemed fit, like deemed fit to stand trial. Um, and after four days in court, Eileen was sentenced to death in the case of Mallory. Hmm. After her sentencing, um, she stood up in the courtroom and kind of started yelling to the crowd, but then seemed to be making eyes at the judge, but shouted something on top to the effect on top of her lungs as she'd be up in heaven watching all of them burn in hell and then flip the judge off as they hauled her out of the courtroom. I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Um, After a few months, um, Eileen was brought in to start talking about these other murders because she'd only been tried for the one murder. And she pleaded no contest in the rest of them. She basically just was like, yep, I did it. And during the trial for these murders, her defense tried to bring in more evidence, namely the record for Mallory, um, which he was a sex offender, a convicted sex offender. Yeah. And they wanted to prove that like, this man has gone through like system programs for sex, like sex offenders and is still a fucking monster. We want to prove the case that it was actually self-defense and the judge wouldn't accept any evidence related to that. Yeah, wouldn't even hear it. He's like, nope, we're not talking about that anymore. Dang. So in February of 1993, Eileen received her sixth death sentence and she, six, not seven, because they never found Sin's body. Mm. He's still missing. Yeah. Um. But after sentencing, Eileen dropped her um, self-defense story pretty much entirely, but several interviewers like off the record, like she was in interviews being like, yeah, I killed him. It wasn't self-defense, I've murdered all of them. And a couple of the interviewers were like, okay, we're not on the camera. And one of the guys tricked her and had the camera rolling and said, did you really, this really wasn't self-defense this whole time? And she essentially said, I don't want to live my life in prison. I would rather them kill me than stay on death row for the rest of my life. So I'm just going to tell them what they have to, he- they want to hear so that they'll kill me. Wow. Which is so sad. Um, she made one official attempt to appeal, which was denied in 1996. And then in 2001, in a petition to the Florida Supreme Court, she asked to formally terminate and like disregard all appeals that might be pending Mm -hmm. and said, quote, I killed those men and robbed them as cold as ice. And I'd do it again too. There's no chance in keeping me alive or anything because I'll just kill again. I have hate crawling through my system and I'm so sick of hearing that she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth, but I'm the one who seriously hates human life and I will kill again. Wow. And yes. And during one of her last interviews, she apparently became just like enraged while talking to an interviewer. I don't recall the specific question he asked, 
But she shouted, you sabotaged my ass, society and the cops and the system. A raped woman got executed and was used for books and movies and shit. And then she also said, thanks a lot society for railroading my ass. It is believed that that outburst was intended for the audience, you know, society and not for the interviewer personally, yeah. but she clearly was very emotional. Um, on October 9th, uh, 2002, what's that he had a bit of a point though uh yeah she totally did um on october 9th 2002 eileen was executed at 9 47 a.m mm -hmm. she refused her last meal but she did accept a cup of coffee and when they finally asked her do you have any final words any last words she said yes i would like to say that i'm sailing at the rock i'll be back like independence day with jesus June 6th, just like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back, I'll be back. Huh. And then she died. And so I was kind of having a discussion about this case because we have talked a gazillion times about so many people go through this abuse and that abuse and that abuse and don't turn out this way. Yeah. Um, I, so essentially the person, I guess might as well just tell you, it's Daniel. Mm -hmm. He was asking if, uh, because she is one of the like first like female serial killers, right? If yeah, first we as well known, yeah. Yeah. Um, he was asking what, like what and if we had any empathy for her and if so more than we would any other serial killer. And, ooh. Yeah, um, because all most serial killers have been sexually abused or abused by parents or had some other social, you know, reasoning like um, they were homosexual and hated for that or that whatever. There's like a gazillion reasons um, that serial killers, mm -hmm. quote unquote, do the things they do. Um, but with Eileen, I still hold hard that, you know, despite all the things, she's still went to an extreme that most people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. However, I feel like she was completely failed by the system. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Not even just the system. It was like, ev not just everything. It was just every extent of her being her existence was just against her and failing her. And I mean, if you- And everyone's supposed to be close to her. Yeah, if you believe in karma and reincarnation, then it's like, I mean, who's the most awful person in history you can think of? Is that who she reincarnated? Like, is that who, is that why she had this? <laughs> Like? Actually, funny you said that. In one of the interviews with her that I watched, um, mm -hmm. she says to the interviewer, um, I don't I don't know the context of the exact person that said this, but it's like the defense attorney or somebody said, you have done some of the worst crimes in history. And she asked the interviewer, do you think I've done the worst crimes in history? I didn't mutilate a body. I didn't, you know, rape or hurt anybody. I shot people. Yeah, I robbed them, but 
but I shot them. Is that the worst crime? Which slippery slope, right? Because you still fucking killed somebody. Right. However, stopped living, but right. She on that note, she's not wrong. Like, yeah, I didn't mutilate corpses. I wasn't like going out hunting people. Well, <laughs> I didn't go out hunting like women wandering alone. However, she was clearly hunting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she was hunting, but she was also trying to figure out how to survive. And it was like the one way she could figure out how to survive was also something that went against like all of her triggers and all of her mm -hmm. sense of safety and, you know, everything. And so she then hated those people. Yep that were partaking of her services and to the point where, yeah, she then murdered them and. The man that, um, the convicted rapist that like really fucked her up. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't find a lot of specifics on his cases, but it sounded like he was a very violent sex offender. So I full heartedly believe that murder was in self-defense, like 100%. But the rest of them, I'm a little like, oh. I forget mm. in the movie how they portrayed that one, which I, I forget if you mentioned that she is the story behind the movie Monster. Which is very good, by the way. Mm. Very good. Charlize Theron did an excellent excellent job playing her um yeah there I think that mostly they stayed pretty accurate from everything I read um I'm sure there's some like you know little fluffy things thrown in there but right but I'm just saying like for that guy in particular when I mean he's he's clearly missing they don't really know exactly mm -hmm. how it went down so I forget how they portrayed it but I know she got beat up I think it was like that she got super beat up you see the beginning of he like ties her up him. and starts yeah like and beating then her and stuff yeah yeah I can't remember but yeah she like comes back into the room where the girlfriend is and is beat up and like yeah yeah that was the first conviction on her yeah. death penalty list which I was like oof and I'm like appalled that the judge wouldn't accept any anything to like give her a retrial based upon evidence that that guy actually was mm. a really violent rapist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, I, I can see it because mm -hmm. given the time, you know, women are still very much more readily blamed and hated for mm -hmm. doing anything that doesn't fit into that status quo of being the caretaker happy loving set themselves aside for everyone else's needs kind of person and so you know and she was also a homeless sex worker so they're like yeah what do we care so two strikes against her she doesn't matter and she doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, her life is so ugh, terrible. Like literally, like I said at the beginning of the story, like literally she like came out of the womb and her life was like fucked up right away. Mm -hmm. Ugh. Awful. No. Yeah, so I guess I hope that answers Daniel's question. I mean, I think it's just more of a she never once even had a chance and then on top of that it's not like she was gaining a lot from any of these situations you know a lot of times <clears throat> with serial killers and mass murderers there's there's some <sighs> twisted kind of I, I mean twisted is a very judgmental term i guess but there's a very psychological gaining of it plus a lot of times there is another form of something they're gaining from it and taking away from and taking advantage of and in her it was like I mean obviously we can only assume but all signs point towards to her it was just she had built up so much hatred from everything coming at her that this is how it finally came out. I would also assume that, again, I, I'm not justifying anything she did, but like I am saying that if you have been nothing but beaten up and raped by everybody basically you've ever encountered, um, and then are also a sex worker and probably mentally ill and probably doing drugs mm -hmm. and you get violently attacked as an adult that it probably sent her just sailing right over the edge yeah. to where she didn't trust anybody so she would became like a shoot first ask questions later kind of a lady yeah which you know clearly isn't the answer but like when you know damn well if she reached out to try to get help the system no. would have she not would have given her that help. Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, it's hard to even know where to find that help. Especially in the late 80s. <laughs> yeah. Early 90s. I mean, now it's hard to know where to find that help. Mm hmm But, uh, yeah, it was the 80s, 90s, and she was a person that society felt didn't mattered. Ugh. I also totally understand her position and being like, I just want to die, man. <laughs> like, yeah. My life has been so fucked and like, here I am, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I can totally, un like, that's so sad though, to just be like, you know what? I give up. Fuck this. Yeah. What's the fucking point? Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. I'm so bummed out that I had to open a second beer. Well, uh, all right, let's take a break. Okay. Maybe I'll go yell at somebody outside. Probably not. <laughs> I'm just burping at you now. <laughs> I mean, it phases me, honestly. <laughs> All right, we're back. 
We just took a crazy long break. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. My beer's almost gone. Second beer's gone for me. Yeah. I uh, actually stopped myself because I was like, oh, I'm almost done. Um, and I figured I would want something to whet my whistle at one point. All right, mm -hmm. Cope. So uh, recently we have been doing a similar like themes or something similar related to our stories instead of beers. Today is not an exception. Okay. We both did stories that are behind a fairly famous, well, famous big movie that inspired big movies. Weird. Do you remember the uh, the phrase, the dingo ain't my baby? Oh, shit. Yes, I do. <laughs> so we're talking about that today. Oh, shit. All right. <laughs> Buckle up, everybody. Yeah. Okay. So Azaria. So people pronounce it two different ways. I've heard Azaria and I've heard Azaria, and I am probably going to say both at some point. So <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that, and I'm not sorry. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting with Azaria. Okay, so Azaria Chamberlain was born June 11th, 1980 in Queensland, Australia to Lindy and Michael Chamberlain. Um, and uh, they both happened to be raised as Seventh-day Adventist. And... Oh. Strangely enough, they were both born in New Zealand and later emigrated to Australia, where they met. Um, and it was kind of around the same time, strangely enough. <clears throat> uh, so Michael moved to Australia in 65, um, right around college age and then, or college time. And then he went into being a pastor at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Australia. Um, and then Lindy moved to Australia in 69, and she was about 21. She moved with her whole family. They went from New Zealand to Australia. All right, so they met very shortly after Lindy and her family moved to Australia because Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, the family soon found a congregation to go to as soon as they moved. And Michael happened to be a pastor there. He was, oh. you know, a young, hot pastor. I don't know. <laughs> I don't don't go together, but you know, for I some mean, people, that does. For her, that's what did it. Look, look at Ned Flanders, okay? How I'm imagining now him being like, hi, diddly ho. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess with an Australian accent, hi, diddly ho. I don't know. 
I don't know how to even do an Australian accent. I can't wait to tell you how perfect your reference of Ned Flanders is. <laughs> We're going to circle back to that. <laughs> I almost spit water all over my laptop. <laughs> I feel like this is going to be my new goal because I think I've almost made you spit water or beer all over your laptop a few different times and mm -hmm. now it's officially my goal every time we record perfect okay. <laughs> all right so michael was the pastor and lindy was like i like what he's saying up there look at his pastor moves i don't know i can't I can <laughs> look at his okay. wicked stash look at yeah <laughs> i don't know what's happening <laughs> He's so righteous. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I don't mean to be. I don't know. We're moving on. Okay. They were soon married. Uh, and that was like, they met and married that same year. Mm. <laughs> Moved to Australia, met Michael, got married all the same year. <laughs> Been there. Um, yeah. Well, I mean. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so by 1973, they had their son, their first son, Aiden. And then three years later, they had their son, Regan. And then in 1980, June of 1980, along came Azaria. Um, then same year, just very shortly after, uh, after Azaria was born in August, the Chamberlains all piled into their family car and headed out for a summer road trip. Um, they went to Australia's famous Ayers Rock. They arrived late in the evening of August 16th, just basically in time to set up tent throw their stuff in there and go to sleep. Um, and then, so next day they all get up and they're, you know, okay, let's go explore the area. Michael and the two boys went and kind of hiked, explored and climbed around Ayers Rock. And then um, Lindy wandered around a bit exploring um found a little area called Fertility Cave that's kind of by there. Uh, well, not kind of. It is by there. It's walking distance <laughs> the camp. Um, and, of course, she had nine-and-a-half-week-old Azaria on her hip. And before anybody starts to be like, why would you take a baby camping? Because you want to live your goddamn life. Mm -hmm. and it turns out people have been doing it for centuries Layla's been camping her entire life she was born in November and by July, June she was camping she wasn't nine and a half weeks old but you know we also didn't live in Australia you don't want to go camping when the time of year when Layla was nine and a half weeks old also she mm -hmm. was a preemie so things are different um but same difference. You live with it. It's actually not that bad. Um, anyway, so 
back to this. So Lindy has Azaria on her hip while she's kind of exploring this whole fertility cave thing. She looks up and kind of on the top of the cave, like there's the cave and then like the big hill or whatever. On top of that, she notices a dingo. She's kind of creeped out by it. She's like, I feel like this dingo's just staring at us in a you look tasty kind of way. So she's like, I'm just going to not be here anymore. So she goes back to camp because wise choice smart mom, and she followed her intuition. Um, so fast forward to that evening, the family's hanging out, they're grilling their dinner. They're chatting with a family that's camping right next to them that happens to also have kids. Um, they notice that there's dingoes kind of milling about kind of the whole area, like the campground and stuff. And, um, Michael and the boys kind of just cause it's entertaining. They start kind of chucking bits of food, like crusts of bread and stuff like that out to the dog, the dingoes, which if you don't know what a dingo is, it's a essentially a dog medium size between wolf and fox looking somewhat more like a fox but bigger but also they can take down animals three times their size like they eat kangaroos like full size not the small wallow. Kangaroos are nothing to be fucked with either. Mm -hmm. They can take down a horse. They can take, I mean, like, Australia now back is not easy. It's not kind. It's not, yeah. Um, everything's poisonous. Everything's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. And it wants to. Those are <laughs> no exception. Uh, also, apparently, their jaw can open wider than any other canine i don't like that that's a fun fact you can just kind of tuck back there for a little while later yeah. shove that under your pillow for a sweet sweet nightmare <laughs> add that to the nightmare list but i'll <laughs> later in this story um Okay, so they notice dingoes milling about the camp, kind of like, oh, you know, look at them over there, like throwing food, blah, blah, blah. Um, somebody at the camp kind of yells, you shouldn't encourage them. They were right. Um, so as it started to get more closer to dusk, Lindy's like, all right, got to get the kids to bed. She takes the baby and the two boys back to the tent puts everybody to bed um so this i will note that this story has a few different parts that um have somewhat differing details some reports say that the boys were already asleep in the tent when she took the baby in to put her down. Other reports say that 
she took all the kids to bed. Other reports say that only one of the boys was in there. So we're going with however it fits the story, but she, all of the kids are going to bed. Um, they have like a kind of makeshift bassinet in there cause they're camping in a tent. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, puts everybody down, starts to walk back, gets kind of settled in, hanging out with the other adults, chatting around a fire at basically normal camping shit. Um, not like they're far away. All of a sudden, about 10 minutes after she got all the kids down, she hears this blood-curdling scream from the baby. Not the, I'm unhappy because I woke up, I'm unhappy because I'm hot, I'm unhappy because my diaper's wet or poopy or, you know, none of the, like, normal baby, I'm miserable type cries. It's the, I'm an immense pain every mother or father's worst fear cry so she lunges runs at the tent and as she gets there and this is another like conflicting reports time some reports say she sees as she gets there she sees a dingo just barely running like she just catches a glimpse kind of in the distance of a dingo running away but the court reports that i could see state that she gets there she run jumps into the tent baby's nowhere to be found there's blood on like the floor of the tent she steps back, she realizes, she looks, and coming out of the tent appear to be paw prints leading out of the tent. I have two questions very fast. One, the boys were still in the tent. Yeah. And two, how close, how far were they from the tent when this happened? Do we know? We don't know, but okay. basically from what I could see from pictures and kind of guesstimate 10 15 feet i mean like super oh, dang. Not, okay. like maybe i'm also bad with distance i'm sorry i'm bad at time and distance um like same campsite okay which they're not big okay yeah campsites are not big so very close um, but also it's, it's like that tail end of dusk at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you know, sitting engrossed in conversation with another couple that happened to be camping right next to you. And they also have kids get to know people you're out in nature and there's all kinds of sounds just at all in nature other people camping around so you're not gonna be more apt to staring and looking back at every single noise you hear yeah um all right so also the boys were about 
like almost seven so like six but on the like older end of six mm -hmm. and four newly four all right so then yeah so she goes to the the tent blood dingo tracks and then they hear her scream my god my god the dingoes got my baby which in the movie turns into the dingo ate my baby all right mm -hmm. so everybody scrambles authorities are called investigators arrive and they see blood on the tent floor paw prints leaning away kind of disappearing once it gets to the road um Here's a heartbreaker. Six, almost seven-year-old Aiden crying, hugging on the mom of the um, the couple next that were next to them. Um, cause she's of course she's a mom. She's gonna comfort a kid that's freaking the fuck out. Mm -hmm. And he's standing there and just bawling his face off and he says the dingo has our bubby in his tummy oh no yeah so pretty quickly upwards of 300 or more people are there searching with flashlights everywhere for any type of clue to where baby Azaria could be all of that or all that they could find were dingo tracks and that blood you know in the tent but then also the along the dingo tracks you know a little bit further away they could see what appeared to be like indention indentations in like the sand basically because it's all desert um like dirt sand whatever uh where it looked almost like the dingo whatever it was carrying in its mouth would occasionally like set it down or drop whatever it is down to kind of readjust in its mouth pick it back up and kind of like drop readjust and kind of as it's picking it up and taking it like running of course too and sort of dragging this thing a little bit as it's picking it back up and whatever it has in its mouth. But there are a few different points where they notice that the indentations appear to be a type of knitted fabric Ew. that matched the knit pattern of the, what they call a matinee or matinee jacket, which is basically a cardigan. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's pretty much all they could find that night. A um, couple days later, a few of the um, policemen, investigators, whatever you want to call them, uh, getting together over coffee, a meal, what have you, discussing the case. And they're all very decidedly sure 
that the parents are somehow to blame. They've decided that there's no way that the dingoes did this. And yeah, they just kind of have just decided this in their minds and they're kind of talking it through, essentially figuring out how they can put things together to make their theory make more sense than all of the clues that they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Put the little pin in that one. So about a week later, the clothes and diaper that Azaria were, was wearing that day or that evening were found about 400 meters from where the family's tent had been. The neck of the clothes was bloodstained. That would um, indicate that the way the baby died was somehow a laceration to the throat. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the cardigan or matinee jacket uh, was still missing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when they're, when the parents are describing, when Lindy, the mom, is describing exactly what Azaria was wearing, and she's saying, you know, she's wearing this little jumper, she's wearing this type of diaper, she's wearing this type of um, matinee jacket or cardigan. Um, So they find everything except for this jacket. So you can't necessarily prove that uh, the baby was taken through the dirt or anything like that, because that's, it would be on that cardigan. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's like very few puncture marks in the clothing. So these officers or investigators that have decided that they I mean it's one of those things where like the way you word it you know um but essentially they have decided that it's the parents that did something so they run with one version of a theory and their version is Well, clearly, someone slashed the baby's throat, discarded the clothes over here, and then discarded the baby's body. So, and then maybe this matinee jacket or this, you know, cardigan, whatever, just doesn't exist. So, all right. Um the Chamberlains, and all of the physical evidence pointed to a dingo taking the baby away. Even um, the fact that the chief ranger of this area had actually been writing to the government for the past two years before this happened about his concerns of the dangerous 
increasing population of dingoes that had gotten increasingly brave, or as he called it, cheeky, towards people, even approaching and occasionally grabbing at people's arms and legs. Bites and stuff. Yeah. For two straight years, he'd been just writing letters to beg to have something happen, to have help or something for this overwhelming dingo population. Um, so, of course, as is the way they do procedure in Australia, a coroner's inquest is done, which is basically the coroner's office does a major investigation of all pulling together all the facts all the evidence and also going with um any forensic evidence they have and the coroner's inquest tends to weigh more heavily than just about anything else in um australia so that is done and it points to i mean it the coroner's inquest says we believe it was a dingo that is the demise of this baby we do not have a body however everything we do have points to this overwhelming dingo population they are aggressive they are able to snap bones and eat them and eat things that are way bigger than this baby and without any problem and they were cited you know all the things so supreme court says nah i don't like that do another one (laughs) um because they're siding with the investigators who got together over coffee and decided nah it's probably the the parents it's always the parents couldn't be the the wild feral animals in the area that have been a concern. Um, so the indictment was held after a second inquest in um, 1982. And Lindy was uh, put up on charges of murder of Azaria. And then Michael was put up on charges with accessory after the fact. Then on October 29th, 1982, both parents were found guilty and charged officially in court um, that Lindy used the dingoes as an excuse. They state that she slit the baby's throat while in the car. They said that they found forensic evidence of blood splatter and that they tested material and found that it was basically baby's blood. Um, So she slit the baby's throat in the car, then used this distraction of, oh my God, um, a dingo got my baby and everybody starts looking you know, the scramble of everybody looking for the baby, she uses that, all this disturbance as a moment to discard the body. 
and like throw the baby's clothes the 400 meters away. They're forgetting the part where everyone heard the baby scream. Right. And I'll get into the quote forensic evidence they found. Okay. So they're charged. Lindy spends four years in jail. Then February 2nd, 1986, new evidence is found. Guess what it was? Sweater. Yep. It was her little cardigan. Someone hiking, slipped and fell, and when they were looking for that person who sadly did not make it, um, he fell into an area that uh, he couldn't climb out of, and he was terminally injured. Anyway, while they were looking for this missing hiker, they ended up finding her cardigan. So Lindy was released from prison. Um, oh, also the cardigan was super close to a dingo lair. How far do we know about how far this is from the campsite? No, but I do know it. Everything just says it wasn't that far. Um, Basically, the direction the dingo was headed mm -hmm. with those paw prints away from the tent. The actual physical evidence. Okay. Uh, so finally, they let her go. They, um, uh, the sentence was remitted, but it was not expunged. So in other words, they were like, you, we're going to say like you didn't do it, but also we're not going to say sorry officially. And we're not going to like completely take it off your record. It's such bullshit. Yeah. So the Royal Commission was called to begin investigating the false imprisonment of Lindy and false charging of Michael. And finally, in 1988, the Chamberlain, Chamberlains were officially fully acquitted by the Supreme Court of Australia. Um, and they finally performed a third coroner's inquest to establish the correct reason of death, which was dingo attack. Um, also... They couldn't ignore the fact that between the time she was in jail and at this moment, uh, a good handful of other children had been attacked, some dead, due to dingoes in that area. Yikes. Also, they brought in an expert who, you know, all these people were like, there's no way a dingo could could put its mouth on something as big as Azaria. And this dingo expert said, like basically showed pictures of a dingo holding something in its mouth much larger 
than this baby, this nine and a half week old baby. Ugh. Yeah. So, all in all, this ended up being the, and still is, the most famous murder slash trial slash court case, death, whatever, case in Australian history. Actually, a few movies were made after it. Some TV shows. Um, a made-for-TV movie. Even an opera was Jesus. Made, made with this in mind. Um, one of the most notable, most famous movies released in 1988 was called, well, in the States, it was called A Cry in the Dark. Starring Meryl Streep oh, well. as Lindy Ch Chamberlain. No big deal. And that's <laughs> when the famous line that kind of became a joke in the 80s. Like, I remember hearing people kind of quote it. Seinfeld. Um, that dango ain't my baby. And, yes, it was quoted in a Seinfeld episode and... Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was quoted, like, referred to in an episode. Even a Simpsons episode was dedicated to this. <laughs> and Damn. That's, yeah. Um, all the way up to the year 2012, things were still kind of going on. There are still people in Australia that fully wholeheartedly believe that this family killed their baby um oh i was gonna run back to the uh quote forensic evidence they had they found um the quote blood splatter they thought they had was actually a cleanup of um basically fill when the car was being made manufactured they mm -hmm. like spray this kind of filler in between certain spots in the kind of roof line and at one point it kind of kind of squirted off and they wiped it down when they went through with that blue black light and they said oh, that's blood splatter it wasn't it was like the filler, glue, whatever material. And so they didn't act, they lied and didn't test it because yeah. I can only imagine that human blood and glue don't have a lot in common. Exactly. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. I totally believe her. Yeah. Especially they have witnesses at the campsite that heard the baby yell. Mm -hmm. The seven-year-old probably saw part of. Exactly. It happened. Ugh, it's terrible. Yeah. So it was like not too long after she got out of jail for the four-year sentence, they ended up having their second daughter. And there are scenes of the family kind of walking away because there were several other attempted court cases and things like that because people just still kept trying to go after them 
God damn, and, the people lost their baby. Chill out. And the Ugh. the Australian community of everywhere like lost their goddamn mind all at the same time. And um you know, this is also at a time when the Seventh Day Adventist religion was very misunderstood. Um, people equated it to, oh, shoot, shoot, I'm going to blank, but it was another, it was a, some sort of, um, oh, Jonestown. For some reason in Australia, they equated it to the Jonestown, like they equated this religion to Jonestown. And so they thought anyone that was Seventh-day Adventist was just crazy, batshit bonkers, even though what we know in the states of Seventh-day Adventists, it's like there's that one community somewhere off the coast of California that they happen to all be a Seventh-day Adventist. And it's like the people that live the longest in all of the U.S. because of the religious practices that also have them eating a strict type of food <laughs> certain way. And... They're very regimented in their days, but also um, anti-violence, anti-aggression in any way, and um, like practically Quakers in the way that they hold themselves and go about their daily lives. And... Um, it's just kind of wild to me to, to think about people deciding that a religion they don't understand is all of a sudden the evil. Mm-hmm. Little Hello, world history. Constantly repeating itself. So that is how... Um, you know, that movie came about that we got that line from, but also, uh, it is a really wild story and the, it's just mind blowing the fact that people still very hotly debate what they believe happened, even though physical evidence points to <laughs> and witnesses. I'm just like. Yeah. Literally, there is no, no indicator that the parents had anything to do with the baby's disappearance. Yeah, I mean, people, um, I mean, it's pretty well known that when it comes to someone on trial for a murder, no matter how they act emotionally, it's going to be held against them. And... Seventh-day Adventists, they wholeheartedly believe that everything is God's will. So if someone dies, it's God's will. If something is taken away from you in any way, it's God's will. And so their grieving process is a little different than maybe yours and mine. Um, because to them, they have such a strong belief system in, okay, God chose that it was time for her to go. 
And I mean, you, if you think about it, I mean, that this is a wild animal that takes this baby. So that's how could that not be God's plan? He Mm -hmm. gets this wild animal to come and take the baby. So when the parents were speaking to authorities or overheard by reporters or speaking in court, um, they weren't quote emotional enough. So that kind of furthered those thoughts that people had of that they killed their own baby. So. Damn, that's wild. I just pulled up some pictures. Yeah. Are you seeing the the tent in front of Ayers Rock? Which now I read that you're you haven't like people haven't been allowed to camp near there for quite some time because it's not fucking safe because of the dingoes. You don't say. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Oh man. Well, if nobody else is bummed out, I sure am after today's episode. <laughs> I think it's wild though. We both did a a crazy uh, death uh, that prom- what's the word I'm trying to think of um, inspired movies major movies it's also um, both stories are examples of different ways that the system failed women yeah which is interesting yeah amen to that I, I kept thinking about that in while you were telling your story about how it's just so much easier, or at least, I mean, yeah, it still is so much easier to immediately just be mad at women for not falling into whatever line or box or hole or whatever it is that you put them in. Totally. In your mind. Shit. Look at some of the, shooters we've had um that have done mass shootings have been given like snacks and refreshments while they're on their way to jail and then you think about like henry lee lucas and he was getting like milkshakes and special presents brought to him and they all did these horrible fucking things i don't know the asshole kid's name but up in um uh what minnesota with during the towards the beginning of Black Lives Matter marches. Well, not but last year, Mm -hmm. um, spring-ish of Black Lives Matter marches when he shot up a bunch of people doing a peaceful Mm -hmm. march. Um, Not only did he kill people and should spend a very minimum the rest of his life in jail for being a complete, like, mold on a piece of shit um but uh a lot of a specific um political belief system uh pooled together money to keep him out of jail including several police organizations pooled money together to keep him out of jail and did not 
pull him away in cuffs. They walked him, joking around, letting him continue to hold his gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel fairly proud that I don't know his name because I don't. I don't either. Like his I don't. Important. To yeah, I was gonna say I actually don't care what his name is. He's a piece of garbage. Yeah. Um, we should remember the good people's names and not the piece of shit's names. Uh, we should just remember that they did a thing that should never be done again. And that's a whole tangent that I went way off track on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I think uh, now is a good point to say sweet dreams. Mm -hmm. Like, go see what those noises are. Make sure that those noises in the living room are my cats and not your child or something else. Or, yeah, <laughs> talk about creepy stories. So, you know, immediately bad things come to mind. All right, until next time, <laughs> drink good local beer, and you're welcome for the nightmares. Mm -hmm. For more information, we can be found on Instagram at Seattle underscore on underscore tap. Email at Seattle on tap at gmail.com or our website, Seattle on tap.com. You can also like us on Facebook and all of the Seattle on tap original music is provided by Bubble Bathism, courtesy of the Subterranot Recording Collective. <laughs>